Alright, hello one and all to another episode of Powering Bitcoin. I have another great guest for everybody, every listener out there today again. Um, today, Jaran Mellerud joins me from Norway. He is a business developer and research analyst for Luxa. Um, specifically writes articles about diff mining in different parts of the world um, and really is the ideal person to just give a brief overview over what mining looks like um, on different parts of the globe. Um, but before we get started, Yaran, do you have the block height for me? The current block height is 797,114. All right, perfect. The last difficulty change is at minus 3.26%, hash rate at 3.64 exahashes per second. That's the seven-day average. And the hash price is at nearly 80 US dollars per petahash per day. So a nice little bump um, in, in hash price there. Yaran, introduce yourself quickly. Um, who are you? What do you do at Luxa? How do you get started? How did you get started within the uh, Bitcoin is industry? And what do you do at Luxa specifically? Yeah, let's start with how I got into Bitcoin. So uh, I got into Bitcoin, I will be honest with you, I got into Bitcoin by pure greed because I always loved investing. And uh, Warren Buffett was my big hero when I grew up. I uh, worked hard, saved every dime I made and flowed it into the stock market. But then one day I realized that the stock market is so overpriced. I can't, I can't keep my money there. So I withdraw everything from the stock market, kept it in the bank, <laughs> just owned a lot of fiat. And then one day in, uh, in early 2020, I uh, looked at the increase of the M2 money supply and it just skyrocketed like this, just vertical. And I was like, man, I why do I have all this cash where they, when they can just print infinite amounts of it? I'm, a, I'm like a loser sitting here with all this cash and they can just print it. And I had the... Um, I had invested a little bit in Bitcoin since early 2017, but I didn't really understand uh, the entire point of Bitcoin. But at that moment, when I saw the increase in M2 money supply, then everything clicked. Every, all the pieces came together. And uh, I just decided, okay, I will, I will plow all my money in, into Bitcoin. I even took up some debt to buy more Bitcoin. And... Um, I decided to, to go deep into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. So the following summer, I just spent during the lockdowns, I just spent the entire summer just studying Bitcoin uh, frenetically. Uh, at the time, I studied energy management at university. Uh, all we learned about was this, uh, like, how wind and solar is going to save the world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I was always quite critical to that because I understood that these were unreliable energy sources that you can't just switch on and switch off when you want. Uh, so when I discovered Bitcoin mining, uh, all the pieces in Bitcoin mining also fell together at that time because I understood how Bitcoin mining is an interruptible energy consumer and that you, you that actually can consume that excess energy from the excess wind and solar production. So that made me extremely interested in mining and I decided, okay, I have to, to work with mining. I, I saw all my friends from university, they... They got jobs at like KPMG or Ernst and Young, and and I was like, or some banks, and I was like, this, this looked quite boring, you know. I don't want to spend 20 years of my life uh, going to the office every day wearing a suit and just uh, talk bullshit every day. 
I want to, to work with something interesting. So I made it my, my goal to get a job in mining. And uh, first I worked as a research analyst within Bitcoin and um, publi started to publish as much as I, as I could about mining every day, some tweets about mining, some articles I wrote about mining. And then I got the chance to work for Hashrate Index and Luxor, and uh, yeah, so that's my that's my journey in in uh, in Bitcoin. And at uh, Luxor, I'm a business developer, so I help Bitcoin miners all around the world optimize and grow their operations uh, through our products, which is the mining pool. We have firmware, at press derivatives, and we also buy and sell ASICs. So. That's what I do. I basically help Bitcoin miners and uh, I write research, publish uh, reports. Uh, so I write newsletters. Uh, I'm working on an article series about Bitcoin mining around the world. So which is focused on explaining the current state of Bitcoin mining in different countries and the potential of these countries for mining. Uh, and this article series is mostly focused on mining in uh, places outside of North America because North America gets all the attention in Bitcoin mining. Like it's a very good place to mine, don't get me wrong. But I think it gets, uh, the rest of the world gets too little attention. So I want to do something about that. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it's a, it's a great, great story. Um, people always ask, oh, how do you get started? In, in working in Bitcoin and stuff like that. And the, the best answer that I can always get, give is to put yourself out, out there. And it sounds like you you did the exact same thing. You wrote articles. You said you worked as a research analyst within Bitcoin. <laughs> But I mean, that's just you working on your own and putting out content for others to read, right? And then at some point, people get interested and they, they see you posting regularly and you're proving your expertise to the public. Um, and then, you know, Luxa may, might, in, in, or in your case, Luxa, I, I believe, came to you and said, hey, you know, we, we need somebody to do this full time. Do you want to get paid for doing this? <laughs> yeah. And, and also, uh, just for the listeners, if someone wants to work in, in mining, it's especially as a research analyst, it's too little a research analyst out there who knows mining. So if you're just... Um, Are interested in it and wants to to do it uh, just uh, be committed to it and every day you you try to learn something new you publish something on your social media and then it will uh, it will grow from there nice yeah perfect okay so let let I me mean, let's talk about the the different areas of mining you said america gets all the attention because i guess we have 50 of the hash rate there all the big mining companies are there i believe outside of of iris um what's your sort of favorite area to talk about outside of the us just in general where do you think like is the most potential or, or the future i think uh, like i recently spent three weeks in the middle east traveling between the uae saudi arabia kuwait uh, and oman and um I think that's the region which is going to have the most growth in the in the coming years. And the reason for that is that, for example, in I really believe in mining in Africa long term, but you're not going to see any mega projects in like 500 megawatt or 300 megawatt in Africa in the near future. But that will happen in the Middle East. So, for example, in the UAE, 
the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Abu Dhabi is uh, partnering with Marathon Digital in building a 250 megawatt facility there. The Sovereign Wealth Fund of Abu Dhabi already has a facility of, I think it's around 200 megawatts currently, but they're scaling up to 600 megawatts. So, and in Oman, you have a couple of huge projects in the hundreds of megawatt range that are being built right now. Saudi Arabia also has a massive potential of, of mining uh, and um, a very, um, very, um, in Saudi Arabia, they're making a lot of changes. It's a very conservative country, but they're becoming increasingly progressive and open to new technologies like Bitcoin mining. So I believe there will be a lot of these mega projects in the Middle East in the coming years. Uh, currently, the Middle East has around, I think, around uh, 600 megawatts, so around 5-6% of the Bitcoin hash rate. But I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this year, they have uh, like 800, 900 megawatts. Uh, by the end of next year, they might have like twice as much, almost like two gigawatts. I wouldn't be surprised. So the Middle East is going to see huge growth. Interesting. Why do you think that is? Why are they so um, behind it? Is it for the same... You know, is the story the same with with um, load balancing as well, or is it just massive amounts of of solar and fossil fuels that they have at cheap prices? What's the the price for energy, uh, in in general? There are um, the, the the price for energy there is basically like the production cost is like one cent or something per kilowatt hour. Of course, it varies between different countries and different places, but Overall, you can find energy for like one cent per kilowatt hour for the production cost. Um, so the big driver in that region is obviously the access to energy, but you have access to cheap energy basically uh, in all continents. Like for example, in, in Africa, as you know, Jesse, you live in Africa, you know the market very well. You have access to basically free energy some places there. South America, you also have access to very cheap energy. So that's a, not a differentiator in the Middle East. The differentiator there is that the governments are willing to experiment with this new technology and they realize the benefits uh, mining has to the electric grid. Uh, for example, in the UAE, they have, um, they have some challenges with the electric grid. That's because it's so extremely hot in the summer while it's relatively cool in the, in the winter. So in the summer, all the air conditioning is running at full speed while, and they turn it down in the winter. So their, their electricity consumption in the summer is almost twice as high as in the, in the winter. But at the same time, they can't turn down their power plants in the winter because they need to keep the power plants on because they use them to desalinate uh, seawater because they don't have uh, natural fresh water access there. So until now they have wasted all this electricity during the winter which they now can monetize by using bitcoin mining and they also in the uae for example they recently opened a huge uh, nuclear power plant one of the biggest in the world this nuclear power plant like nuclear power uh, as you know is um, uh, is uh, baseload energy so you can't uh, easily ramp it up and down so by having this nuclear power plant in the grid producing such a large portion of the energy, 
you will uh, get um, you will need more uh, more uh, flexible uh, demand side to to offtake this periodically excess produced energy or to turn off at a moment's notice for some reasons so that's where mining comes into play so i'm fairly certain that the reason why the sovereign wealth fund invested in mining is uh, because of the energy aspect of mining that they can help stabilize the grid they're also building a lot of solar in the uae which um which as you know also makes the grid quite unstable so um mining is just the best way to monetize this excess energy and uh, stabilize the grid there in in addition the governments of the middle east like they're part of the petrodollar system a very important part of that system and um, they understand that this system is um is uh, <laughs> losing its uh, momentum to say to say it that way so the risk is getting bigger will... that is, is coming to a close yeah Exactly. So, of course, they want some exposure to Bitcoin uh, and uh, with this excess energy, which they can use to produce, to become big producers of Bitcoin, of this new currency, they can actually play a vital part in the future uh, Bitcoin, uh, hyper hyper Bitcoinization system in the world. So why not uh, invest some some money in that, uh, in, in the mining? Um, it's it's so much capital floating around in the region too. So, for them, like investing one billion dollars in in mining is like it's like nothing. They spend uh, spend that money on on the salaries of the football player each year, or by yeah. sponsoring like Manchester City or whatever. So, why for them it's it's, it's nothing. They have Do you have? Yeah, is is there a free market for for electricity? In the UAE, no, it's uh, a utility structure. So um, the the government or the utility has set uh, tariffs for different consumers. So, for example, agricultural consumers they pay like one point five cents per kilowatt hour, and that has led to uh, several um, kind of gray zone facilities in the agricultural area. So. These farmers, they set up some like small mining shed consuming maybe 500 kilowatt on their farm, which they use to subsidize electricity. Uh, you, um, and the industrial rate is like uh, seven to eight cents, so too expensive for mining. But these government projects have access to cheaper electricity. So they have access to much cheaper electricity. Um, and also the an interesting fact about the the UAE system the the pricing is that the local um, citizens of the UAE those with the UAE passport which is like ten percent of the population of UAE they uh, consume or they get energy for like two cents per kilowatt hour residential energy so what has happened is that a lot of the UAE citizens have installed uh, some mining shed in their backyards or in their garages or in their basements where they are they're mining. So um, in the UAE, you will find like showrooms for MicroBT, for example, has a has a showroom in in Dubai uh, where they show all the machines. It's it's a company called Phoenix Technology, which is a distributor for MicroBT who has it. And uh, 
all these shakes and all these UAE citizens come in there uh, and they want to buy these machines just to mine in their in their houses in the UAE. And uh, but but the expat population, which is ninety percent of the population, they pay like eight percent or something for electricity. So how do they make the difference? How do they make yeah. electricity not fungible, or is it just your electricity bill? Yeah, it's uh, it's just electricity bill. Uh, they like the, the economy of this of these countries is heavily government controlled. So. Um, so they, they just decide to, for that group, we're going to subsidize electricity because we depend on the political support of that group, but that group mm. we don't need to support and, and so forth. And down the line, do you, you said the government is quite behind it. Um, down the line, do you see a, a Kazakhstan scenario happening where heavily subsidized electricity used by Bitcoin miners will, will sort of, yeah, make it very difficult to keep the grid stable when you have all these miners that you cannot you know turn off regu or regulate yeah so uh, i think um they will uh, they will crack down on all these uh, farmers using the agricultural subsidized electricity that is going to happen sooner or later uh, because of course the, the government doesn't like to be taken advantage of with subsidized electricity rates uh, that they kind of paying other people to mine Bitcoin and, and get rich from it. They don't like that. So they're going to crack down on that. But the big projects uh, in that the government is behind, um, they are getting integrated with the electricity grid. So uh, it's it's kind of part of the electricity system, this project. So uh, they will be forced to curtail at certain times of the day, for example. Um, but yeah, they, they will they will not contribute to the, the grid getting weaker. They will strengthen the electricity grid. So it will not be like in Kazakhstan where you had just an uncontrollable increase in mining, which just completely ravaged the electricity grid. Last um, last episode, I had um, Bob Burnett from Barefoot Mining on, and he was talking about, and he's written a couple articles on this um, centralization of mining, you know, having these big, he called them elephants and horses um, and rabbits, I believe, you know, rabbits being the super small miners, the horses sort of being one to two megawatts, 500 kilowatt farmers. And then the, the elephants. And so what you're describing, he wouldn't, he would probably heavily dislike because it means, you know, getting rid of, of decentralization and getting rid of all these small mining machines. Obviously, if, if a shike goes into uh, uh, a Watts miner store, buys himself a miner and plugs it into the wall, there's, there's little the government can do about it there. But what I'm saying is if you remove sort of, if the government tries to remove all of these small mining farms, and instead focuses on, on the big ones, then you have exactly that problem again, where hash rate can just disappear uh, at, the, at the almost snap of a finger. Now, the question is, do you think that the, the governments there and the decision makers understand Bitcoin well enough to understand that it actually removes completely the control that they have over their, their, their population and the system in the, in the long term, potentially? Or... What do, you said, they understand Bitcoin mining very well. What, what do they understand? What, what, um, what it can really mean? 
Yeah, so these, these governments in the Middle East are super rich, so they can afford to hire any anyone they want. They pay super well, so they they definitely have access to to expertise who can who can educate them. Um, when it comes to uh, to the fact that Bitcoin is reducing their power over their population, which they depend on, I don't really think they they uh, care too much. To be honest, because because um, it's like a very slow, uh, slow slippery slope. There, you know, it's not like it immediately takes away their power. Is Bitcoin can give the government people some benefits in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to destroy the power of this group as a whole. And uh, I don't think they really the the government people really really care about about that like. Um, because they 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 get some some benefits from it too, you know. So yeah, and, and it do they... also seen from an international perspective, it can increase uh, this region's um, power in the long term in in the entire world because they just have so much energy, and they also can afford to just buy so much Bitcoin. So why wouldn't they they do that? That will increase this region's significance. Uh, even more in the world. So they basically are there instances where they mine for themselves, or is it all sold electricity to big mining companies? Oh, like um, uh, the the sovereign wealth fund of Abu Dhabi is self mining. They get the Bitcoin. Okay. And, uh, and do you know if they hold, or or do they just sell it into the market? I, I don't know, but I, I would assume that they hodl because uh, if they want to get Bitcoin and they, 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 they put so much effort into making this mining facility and they can produce their own Bitcoin and be like kind of Bitcoin self-sufficient, why would why would they sell? Yeah. They have this opportunity to just hodl all the self-mined Bitcoin instead of buying it, so... I would assume they just uh, hold on to it. And does hydro and battery storage play a role in in that area of the world as well? Uh, hydro, we often talk about have... the reason. The reason why I'm asking is um, the reason why I'm so. I mean, hydrogen, not not um, ah. not hydro generators. But but the reason I'm asking is because Bitcoin mining, you know, as a load balancer often gets compared to battery storage and and hydrogen production hydrogen production works optimally if it's constantly online so it's actually a bit counterintuitive as to why it would be proposed as this great problem solver right so the efficiency significantly drops if it's not constantly running which goes against the thesis that they can balance out the loads from from renewables when they're intermittent and then obviously battery storage has huge humanitarian costs if we want to build it out to the level that we need it. Um, if we you know, build out renewables tenfold in capacity or whatever, and the, the battery storage we need there is, is immense, right? So Bitcoin mining really becomes down the line this, this more and more attractive alternative. But the question is, do they... Do they invest in battery technology and, and hydrogen as well as heavily? Do you know that? Yeah, they they do. They have all these uh, all these uh, projects uh, where they don't really care about how much money they put into it. For example, 
some years ago they built a hundred megawatt uh, solar farm which cost like i think they paid like 700 million dollars for it so it's seven million dollars per megawatt which is huge cost for a solar farm and um, i don't know how it how they're ever going to pay that back but the point is that they're willing to, they're making so much money from the oil and gas that they're willing to just throw at other things to to hopefully get some innovation in the future and just test different stuff. So yeah, they're spending spending a lot of money on batteries and hydrogen. Um, I think they're the only ones in the world almost spend a lot of money on batteries and hydrogen. Uh, so yeah, that that's coming. And um um, but they're also spending money on on making Bitcoin mining as a as a low uh, as a grid balancer, so kind of they're kind of experimenting with with different technologies for the electricity system. Okay, so so what does your approach look like, Yaran? When you, I mean, on the website we'll link all of it anyway, but people can have a look. Tomorrow you're releasing a piece on um, the Middle East. As my picture falls down here, I don't know what the hell just happened. Um, but tomorrow you're releasing the, a piece on on UAE and the Middle East and mining there. What does your approach look like when you when you write these pieces as a research analyst? What do you start oh, with? Uh, I usually want to to visit these countries to understand the, the industry deeply because I don't will not understand it as well if I'm not there. As you uh, you're in Africa, so you can understand the the region much better than I. No matter how much uh, research I put into it, because by being there, you see the the nuances there, and you understand the entire system. So that's the first point. I go there to to see what's going on there, and um, and I talk to to players in the region, so I get to know them, and I uh, I do an interview with them to understand what's going on and just hang out with them ask them a lot of questions trying to understand what's going on there and uh, then i just start writing the article i just read read all the information i can find online about um, uh, mining in the region and also about their electricity systems and i just uh, write the article and then i send the article to uh, some of the guys i met in the region and they they read through it and see that everything is accurate, and then I publish it. Okay, and how do you connect with people on the ground? I mean, you can't just f fly there and say, "Hey, here I am. Where are my Bitcoin mining people?" <laughs> yeah. So, um, so uh, I, I'm lucky that I work for Luxor. So we, uh, as a mining. You know, all miners need to use a mining pool. We also provide different services that miners need to use. So we have a big network, so we know a lot of miners in, in different countries. So it's very easy, easy to find people to, to connect with. And uh, yeah. maybe some of these miners can introduce me to other miners in the region. So connecting with people there is, is not, not a problem. Nice. And um, tell me, obviously, I think one thing that's on everybody's mind is temperatures. What do temperatures look like in the UAE? Uh, temperatures in the UAE are, as you know, extremely high. Uh, in the sun, when I was there, there two weeks ago, one week ago, it was 45 Celsius on average each day. And it's in, 
also very high humidity, especially in the in the UAE. So it feels like you're inside a Finnish sauna uh, when you walk outside, and it's 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 crazy hot. I never experienced that before. So um, you you get completely sweaty just by walking hundred meter. So you need to take a taxi everywhere. And you can imagine that mining Bitcoin in such a sauna environment is not uh, not ideal, to say the least. So you need to um, put special emphasis on, on cooling. And there is no way way getting around the fact that uh, a mining operation in the Middle East will consume much more energy for cooling than a mining operation in, let's say, Norway. That's uh, That's nowhere to get around it. They will also require much more infrastructure, much more capex in cooling infrastructure. For example, in the U in Norway, you can just set up the racks. You don't even need any uh, additional fans. Uh, you can just set them up like inside some old industrial buildings and just run them. You can even overclock them uh, a lot of times because it's just so cold. So it doesn't require anything. In the UAE, and most miners there have. Um, like air cooling is rare. Some of these uh, uh, these uh, gray zone mining operations on the farmland, they use air cooling just because they don't want to invest in any expensive immersion systems. And they use these um, water curtains. So the, the air is going through the water curtain and getting cooled by the cold water. So inside the facilities, it was like 26 uh, degrees Celsius, which is not too bad. Um, it's possible to mine in that temperature, uh, but the, I think the lifespan of the machines will, will suffer from always being a little bit, uh, running a little bit hotter than they should should be. Um, you can get around that by using immersion cooling, which this new facility by the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund and Marathon, it's immersion cooled. Um, that can work, but uh, you also need to cool down the immersion fluid, which requires extra infrastructure for cooling, as well as extra energy. So it's definitely more expensive from an operational standpoint to run a mining facility in the Middle East compared to in colder places. So that's uh, that's a big point. You also have some hydro-cooled facilities there. You also have some hydrocooled facilities there, which are, um, which uh, they they work well, but uh, it's it's very salty air in the region, which can cause some problems for hydrocooling. It also has a lot of dust, a lot of sand, uh, which also favors immersion cooling. So I definitely believe immersion is the is the future there for the cooling cooling systems. What do we what do we talk about um, when you say it costs more? Do you have a, a figure in percent, you know, compared to a country like Norway where it's extremely cold, where you have that other end of the spectrum? How much more do you yeah. need to to pay for maintenance and and cooling and stuff? One air cooled operator told me that he spends fifteen percent more electricity on the cooling than the machine than the electricity consumption of the machines themselves. Um, I, I think we can round that number up to 20%, to be honest. So uh, if he pays like three cents per kilowatt hour for electricity, that means that his effective cost will be like four cents just by the extra electricity he consumes 
for cooling um, and the immersion cooling uh, system since they need to invest I don't have the exact number how much it costs to build this immersion cooling infrastructure to build the dry coolers for the immersion but it's definitely very expensive all right um you said there's a lot of dust i think i asked you on twitter before um what the impact is of the dust on maintenance can you elaborate on that do you remember yeah so uh I don't have, uh, I haven't operated a mining facility there, so I don't know how like bad it will get inside these machines, but I can just imagine, like, I, I felt sorry for, for the machines when I visited uh, these, faci uh, these facilities in the desert there on the farmland. Um, there was also like some uh, uh, like destroyed miners lying around and like, <laughs> I could see that they, they, they didn't have a, a very good time there, these machines. So, yeah, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it can reduce the lifespan by about half by running in this environment with my air, wow. uh, using air cooling. Yeah, I guess so. You, we won't really see many used ASICs coming out of those facilities to be resold or anything, or at least you'll have to be careful where you buy your ASICs from, I guess, and where they were operating. Yeah, I, I would I would never buy a, a used uh, air-cooled ASIC from that uh, region. <laughs> All right, that's a, that's a statement. Um, okay, let's let's move away from the UAE for a little bit, Yaran. I mean, people can read the article. It comes out again tomorrow, the 5th of July. I think you'll post it everywhere on Lux's website, LinkedIn, Twitter, everywhere probably. Um, yes. I would like to get a bit of a brief overview over other parts of the world. So can you go into um, South America a little bit, for instance? What are the sort of the rising stars in, in that region? Um, what's happening over there? All right. So um, in South America, you have, uh, my estimate is around 500 megawatts. So that's like 3% of the network. So it's not very big compared to what a lot of people think. A lot of people think that it's really big. Um, we, Luxor was one of the first companies to push for growth in the region in 2020. Uh, we believed it would be a, a huge mining region. Like I still believe that, but it will just take more time than, than most people expected. And uh, the reason for that is that, um, so growth has, has kind of stagnated there and that's because of regulatory uncertainty. So, um, for example, Paraguay had a huge growth like one, two years ago, but that growth has stagnated, um, because the regulatory future of the industry is very uncertain. Uh, there was, a an attempt to regulate mining in Paraguay in last year, but the, the bill was um, was vetoed by the president at the last minute. So the industry is not regulated and no one knows what's really going to happen there. Um, in other countries in the region, Paraguay, and basically the entire region, one common trait is that Uh, importing machines is very difficult and uh, very uh, it can be be very expensive so these countries usually have quite high import taxes and uh, the the means the border officials use to calculate the, these import taxes is very very volatile it 
kind of depends on the on the mood of the of the border official. If you're lucky with the, the right border official, they will go to their phone. How much does uh, an Antman or S19J Pro? What is the price of that online? And as you know, when you look for the price of the Antman or S19J Pro, the price is extremely variable. It can you can get it for fifteen hundred bucks, or you can get it for six thousand bucks from some trading websites. So if you're unlucky and these border officials take the value of six thousand dollars, then you have a very high uh, tax to pay on that machine. So you need to know the right people if you're going to import machines to Paraguay. Um, in Brazil also, they have uh, the reason why there's basically no mining in Brazil is because of uh, the high import taxes for the machines. Uh, in Argentina, they have even uh, uh, banned the import of machines in some cases because Argentina struggles heavily with uh, inflation. So the government of Argentina or the central bank want to limit the amount of dollars that are leaving the country. They don't want to, to let mining companies in Argentina pay dollars for, for machines. That has been a big problem, for example, for, for big farms that struggled for months to, to get their machines into Argentina. Um, and Venezuela also has a huge potential for mining with all this hydropower they have. They have a lot of mining there, but as you know, it's a very politically volatile place. So this thing with South America, it's um, it's very high political risk, uh, very a lot of regulatory uncertainty. So so that that is limiting the growth. But they have a huge potential with hydropower in Paraguay, Venezuela, Brazil, Peru, for example, uh, Paraguay produces six times more electricity than they consume. So you would believe that over time, this electricity should go to mining. Uh, so yeah, over time they will have, it will be a big mining region, but it will, will take more time than, than uh, expected. Now, people will probably raise an eyebrow if I didn't ask about El Salvador. Um, in that region, do you have details on, on what's happening with the volcano mining? I don't have any details, actually. Uh, I'm interested in that project. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of talks about, uh, are we going to do this, are we going to do that? But I haven't seen much happening. Uh, but I guess it just takes more time than, than expected. And I guess the bear market could have made it difficult for them to raise the necessary capital to build out its infrastructure because it, it was a very big project. But um, I'm, I'm sure that, that it will be a lot of mining in El Salvador too. But it just takes more time than, than most people think initially. It just shows you what you just said about the high political risk and the import taxes and the uncertainty. What kind of lever countries really have to set themselves apart. I know I just said we would move away from it, but just to compare that again, what is, you know, the import tax in, in the UAE for mining? If you want to as a uh, ship, ship your miners there, does it cost anything? Yeah, actually, I'm, uh, I'm not sure about uh, how much uh, the government and like marathon pays in the, in the import taxes. Usually it's, it's 5%, but 
I can assume that they can, uh, can get around that as well, because if you're the government in that region, you can basically do anything you want. And and it's kind of not corruption either, because uh, like the government, it's it's not a democracy. It's a, it's a kingdom. So the government kind of can do what, they, what they, yeah. yeah, it's a mon monarchy. So they can do what they, what they want. And like most people there are, are happy with how the government is, is operating because the living standards have increased tremendously the last like 30, 40 years there. Um, but yeah, um, that's, that's the thing. If you're going to operate there, you, you should do it together with, uh, with the government. That's the only thing is going to work in that region. Increase of living standards might also be pushed by cheap energy, I guess. All right. Talk to me about North America. We have 50% of the hash rate there. Just briefly, I know it's, it's covered a lot. Do you think hash rate will grow there? What's, what's your feeling? Yeah, so North America, especially the US, is still the best place for mining. That's uh, I don't have any doubts about that because... You have uh, extreme access to capital, the biggest capital markets in the world. You have low political risk. You have an easier regulatory regime. Um, even though some people might say that it's high political risk in the US, I don't believe that. Like, you have these mining uh, bills coming up that were uh, that were um, put down. This like uh, electricity tax for miners and all that stuff. But it's. Um, it's not happening and um and yeah the us is still a very like politically friendly place towards mining compared to to most places in the world so uh you have a, you have cheap electricity there access to labor and also it's not too hot so it's still a huge uh, very very good place to be a bitcoin miner in the us um so i believe the region or the us will continue growing Uh, Canada might not ha have as much growth as the US, but the US will will still grow. We see it; it's still growing. For example, uh, Riot recently uh, announced the purchase of like six thousand, no, how many? No, thirty thousand uh, micro BT machines, uh, with option to buy sixty thousand more. Um, so you have you have still a lot of growth in 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 North America, and it's going to come a lot of growth. But I believe that uh, in terms of the percentage of the Bitcoin network, it will not uh, increase. Um, I think uh, we, we see that many American miners also want to diversify geographically. So geographic diversification is becoming a very big theme. So uh, a lot of the public miners are going to seek alternative jurisdictions for mining, like the Middle East or South America potentially or Northern Europe. Um, this is going to, to lead the percentage of the US hash rate to, to go down a little bit. And also when we see this, um, and when, when people find in Africa, parts of Africa find cheap energy and they realize that mining is a way to monetize this cheap energy. Of course, it's going to lead uh, to mining, more mining there. Like a few years ago, no one was thinking about Oh, you can actually mine Bitcoin in Africa. But now people start to be aware of that. And I think over the next year, uh, more and more people, with the help of you, Jesse, are going to be uh, aware of, of these opportunities. Um, 
So yeah, I'm I'm bullish on on the growth of mining in in other parts of the world, but I, I still think North America is is a very good place to mine. So yeah, and we spoke about North America. Great overview, thank you. Do you have um, specifics on Canada as well, next to the U.S.? Yeah, so uh, Luxor does a lot of business uh, with Can Canadian miners. Um, so what I can say is that Canada has uh, at, at least as big mining potential as the U.S. when it comes to the energy, because Canada is an energy superpower, endless amounts of oil and gas. They have some nuclear facilities there, um, a lot of hydro as well. So from an energy perspective, Canada has everything needed for being a behemoth of the Bitcoin mining nation. The problem in Canada is um, the poli politics of it. So as you, as, you, um, as you probably know, like in Canada, they have, uh, like in, in the US, one, one thing that is uh, going on in the US is that democratic states are usually very anti-mining, while the Republican states are more kind of more in favor. And in Canada, you have kind of uh, more uh, more left-leaning governments who are kind of more inclined to go after mining and be more reluctant to accept Bitcoin mining. So in Canada, the government uh, has uh, not made things very easy for the miners. For example, um, they uh, they re I think it was last year, end of last year. They uh, they announced that miners uh, would not be able to register their business as the, in the VAT as as VAT payers. So uh, miners purchase all this mining equipment and import it. And uh, at businesses, they they can get their VAT back. They don't need to pay the VAT. But if they're not registered in this VAT registry, they don't they can't get the VAT. Uh, return. So the Canadian government tried to um, to to remove the miners from this uh, VAT registry, and even even uh, make the miners pay back the VAT they had received from all the previous years. So that's part of why the the Canadian mining industry is not seeing any growth right now. It's actually probably decreased a little bit. Uh, many Canadian miners are moving to the US. So that's a, that's a problem in Canada, but um, there are some Canadian uh, politicians like this. Uh, I don't remember his name, Pierre something. He is uh, Pierre Polivier or something. He is kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, kind of a Bitcoiner. So there might uh, uh, be some improvements in the, the regulatory regime in the coming years. I have a good feeling about that the. Uh, the pendulum is uh, is turning, both in Canada and the U.S. There's a it's it's great this episode because it just gives you a feeling for how different different parts of the world think about this, right? Uh, especially as it's sort of a stark contrast to the UAE. Um, el, el, uh, we don't hear a lot about Central Asia either. What what's going on there? Do you have any insight on on that part of the world, Central Asia? What's happening there after yeah. the China mining ban? Yeah, yeah. I, I was I spent uh, spent a couple of weeks in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan in uh, this spring. And uh, what I can say is that this region has very little potential for mining, at least in the short term. 
Kazakhstan had a huge growth of the mining industry. At one point, it was the pink number two in mining globally behind the US. It had like 18% of the hash rate at one point. Um, but this huge growth in that short period of time also became the demise of the mining industry in Kazakhstan because they have a very fragile old electrograde from the Soviet era. And when you suddenly have 18% of the mining capacity in the world in that fragile grid, and they don't have any uh, demand response system, they don't have any incentive for making the miners turn off their machines at peak, uh, peak uh, demand. Of course, you're going to have uh, problems with the electric grid. So they actually had the rolling blackouts during, I think it was during the summer of 2021, if I'm not mistaken. It's probably not only mining's fault, it's probably also the the fault of the grid operator not having invested a single dime into the electricity system in 30 years. But of course, the miners get all the blame for that. And I'm not saying that it's the miners have no part of the blame, but... Um, so, yeah, the government cracked down on the mining industry. They wanted to get rid of it. So they um, now they have imposed a new regulation for mining just recently, uh, where the miners need to pay like a minimum price for electricity. So, for example, if a miner has electricity for two cents, the government will put a, a five cent tax on top of that so that all the miners will pay about seven cents in minimum. So if they pay four cents, they will put three cents. So seven cents is like a minimum price. So operating as a grid connected miner in Kazakhstan right now is um, unfortunately uh, not going to work in the long term. But um, they still have some off-grid potential. They have some hydropower plants in the south, which uh, are not connected to the grid. There is there is some mining over there. They have the potential to build out this hydro as well. In Kyrgyzstan as well is a mountain country. So there, there the government also cracked down on mining after they had rolling blackouts. Um, the, co the common trait of these two countries is that both had electricity subsidies, which just led to a lot of miners flocking in to, to arbitrage these electricity subsidies. The government doesn't like that. Um, but yeah, in, in Kyrgyzstan, they have the potential of developing these small hydropower plants in the mountains that they can use mining to, to, uh, to develop and to, to monetize this energy while they wait for the grid connection. It's kind of uh, similar to, uh, to what you have in, in Africa. Uh, for example, companies like Gridless are doing in, in different places in Africa where they build these small hydropower plants financed by, by Bitcoin mining. So that's going on in, in Kyrgyzstan and, and Kazakhstan, and it's basically the only future of mining in this region. I mean, it, it probably takes a special kind of entrepreneur to say, hey, let me go into um, Kyrgyzstan and build a hydropower plant and mine Bitcoin, right? You would have to assume that it's mostly locals that, that have those ideas to do that. Um, actually, actually, it's uh, I know a company from uh, from England. They are based in London. It's a huge investment firm. They are doing that. Wow! Also in okay. in parts of Africa. So, um, yeah, there there are some some uh, some huge companies 
uh, we see the potential of, of doing this. But of course, you need to have a very close connection with the, with the locals yes. to be able to do that. And just, just like in Africa, they need to have special, especially a close relationship with the, uh, with the local village so that they can protect your equipment and, and, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, we keep mentioning Africa. There's a lot of potential. The reason being, and, and I strongly believe that it's it's one of the key areas for mining going forward is because it's such a vast country, uh, such a vast continent, I should say, and the electricity infrastructure is not built out. Like the compared to other parts in the world, you know, the, the grid infrastructure um, in parts doesn't even exist. Yet there's so many different resources, so much potential for, for generating electricity from hydro, from solar, from wind, from, from all these other sources, Kenya with the geothermal, lots of, lots of potential there. Um, and the, the idea is, hey, you know, if, if the energy has nowhere to go, it's not worth anything. So how about we use that stranded energy and just sit or co-locate mining next to the electricity uh, provider, right? So... But then again, you have regulatory uncertainty, um, the perceived risk for Africa and for deploying quite a bit of debt capital within ASICs um, and infrastructure and, and power equipment and stuff like that is, is always high. So again, I think, but that goes for, for even the UAE. You, you need somebody on the ground that understands the market, that has the connections, that can make things move, that can get your import tax down to zero potentially. Um, and really make it very friendly and easy. And I think you you will see that more more local companies will realize this. Bitcoiners in those countries that that have those ideas, that have the connections to government, <clears throat> that can obfuscate these headaches away. So so I I strongly believe believe that's a that's that's the future. But we sh we shall see. I mean, um, it'll always we'll always have to see how it plays out. Do you know of of any countries in sort of Southeast Asia that that are into Bitcoin mining at all? Because that's also an area where I've not heard anything about yet. Yeah, it's uh, it's a huge hydropower potential there as well, especially in uh, like we know already that Malaysia has, uh, according to Cambridge, they have like four percent of the hash rate. That's okay. uh, quite right. substantial. Um, I don't know, like, I know that Bitmain has uh, some factories there, so it might be that Bitmain is, like, testing their machines or something in Malaysia. Um, I know that in, in some parts of this, uh, in Malaysia, they have a lot of, of hydropower, like, it's an I island country, so they have a lot of different islands. And, of course, uh, if one, like, smaller island has a, where it almost doesn't be people, have so much potential for hydropower. It will be very difficult to export this electricity to the islands where it lives a lot of people. So obviously, Bitcoin mining can be a solution to that. Indonesia has the same potential. I don't remember exactly the name of the island, but in one part of Indonesia, the governor was like going out saying that we need Bitcoin miners to come here to use our excess uh, energy. Um, also, Laos has uh, a lot of potential uh, for for Bitcoin mining. Um, they they have a lot of Bitcoin mining already. So um, 
it's actually Laos is a communist country, so it's just funny that they have uh, Bitcoin mining. It would uh, think that it's a complete uh, antithesis to mining and Bitcoin. At the end of the day, it's all about all about the money um, to to make that moon. I, I mean, we've heard about Bhutan as well, the government there that yeah. um, that recently started mining. Have you been to Bhutan? Yeah, yet? yeah. No, I haven't, but I'd, I'd love to go to Bhutan. Uh, it's supposed to be a very uh, peaceful country uh, with only this Buddhist monk who walk around in his robes and just enjoy life. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to go there for this purpose, but also to uh, see how it's going on with mining there. So Bhutan, they have um, a huge hydropower uh, production already, which they export to India or barely nothing. So they almost don't make any money from this hydropower. Uh, they also have a very, by, by India being the only possible consumer and buyer of this hydropower, they also have a very high risk uh, by like, what if India stops buying? Like India can negotiate very favorable terms since they're the only possible buyer. So it makes sense for Bhutan to to say, hi, we want another potential buyer. We want some Bitcoin miners there. That also can create local jobs for this, uh, local jobs in the country, instead of just sending the energy to, to India, where it's used in, in manufacturing or something in India. So, and Bitcoin mining in, in Bhutan can also be used to build new hydropower plants. I also know uh, Nepal has also the same potential. So it's basically, in uh, before the China ban, most of the mining in China happened like in, in this mountain area close to uh, Bhutan and Nepal. So it makes sense that these countries also have a lot of potential in, in mining. They will become big, big miners. So it's so interesting just to think about like that mining uh, um, in, in the long term it's going to go to where the energy is. Uh, like now it's mostly going where the regulatory landscape is more clear, but over time it's going to flow into these places with just too, where they have too much energy to do something with. I would I would say the more time goes on, the more governments realize that they can't stop this and that they can actually benefit from this. Um, when I'm listening to you, it also seems like there's no shortage in, in electricity um, in many, many parts of the world. Right. So it only makes sense. I, I fully agree that energy or, or mining will move where where the energy is. Um, and so will people, you know, that the energy is the basis for everything. In, in a previous job where I worked in energy access in Mali in West Africa, we we saw that firsthand. Right. So we we see what the difference is that energy uh, and a constant supply of electricity can make. And Bitcoin mining can be that that anchor load that goes first monetizes the energy resource and as soon as other demands comes in you you scale back the um, the bitcoin mining unless you're in the uae and you have you have too much power for for that not to matter um but maybe in the sort of last innings of this episode let, let's talk about europe a bit more i mean we're both europeans we understand that there is some bitcoin mining happening in in the northern parts in finland norway sweden where I believe even Norway and Sweden are looking, well, the potential for growth is 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 not as strong as it was a couple of years ago, if if I understand that correctly. 
um, Estonia, Lithuania, all of these countries and in Northern Europe, maybe let's talk about those. And then also Central Europe, where obviously energy prices are uh, or have gone to the moon. What, what, do you, what yeah. are your thoughts on this? Sure. So um, currently, like most of the mining in Europe is in the Nordics, as you mentioned, uh, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, and Finland is also growing. It's the only place in the Europe which is actually growing is Finland. So currently, I estimate around 600 megawatts. So it's about 5% of the hash rate is coming from, from uh, the Nordics or Europe. So um, that said, Euro, uh, it has stopped growing. So Norway, Sweden, Iceland, there's no new build out of electricity there. And um, electricity is very scarce now. So there's currently, you need to apply to get like, to get the energy from the grid operator uh, in Norway and Sweden, for example. And uh, the, the queues are just enormous. So if you as a miner want to set up operation there and connect to a substation, you will have to stand in, in line for like five years and uh, you will not get an, any energy. So there's no growth there. Finland has some growth because they recently op uh, opened a huge uh, nuclear power plant, which is uh, very cool to see that they actually uh, did this despite all the pressure from Europe to not open this power, uh, nuclear power plant. They just did what they had to do. Um, and so Finland will, will have an electricity um, surplus for the first time in, in a very long time there. Um, they also have a lot of um, factories, for example, that moved abroad, moved to China or whatever. So they have all these places in Finland with, uh, where it's possible to connect uh, to the grid. So Finland will, will become a big mining nation. Um, and then we can move to uh, to like the, the um, uh, Estonia, Latvia. They had some mining there, but uh, I don't think there are much left after energy prices there spiked. Um, and then Central Europe, obviously, very little industrial scale mining and probably nothing because then you would just no one wants to just burn away money by mining. Uh, but uh, we see a lot of innovation coming from that region because, uh, as you know, uh, Jesse, uh, after uh, you're, you're European and you also was in Prague, you saw that the European Bit Bitcoin community is, uh, is extremely strong. And uh, a lot of people want to mine Bitcoin in Europe. Like if energy prices were low, Europe would probably be the biggest miner in, in the world just because there are so many people who just want to do it. Um, so we have some some uh, some guys in in Europe, like for example uh, Terrahash. They're working to uh, to on different mining innovations, which is really great to see. They're trying to make mining happen even in Europe with high electricity prices, and I think they 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 can succeed too because uh, electricity prices in Europe are getting increasingly volatile. So you have you have uh, most of the time very high prices, and then some of the times you have negative prices. So recently in the Netherlands, prices went to like 500, minus 500 euros per megawatt hour for many, many hours. This never happened uh, two years ago, three years ago. This is because of all the new solar power plants who come online. Uh, 
a lot of wind power, which especially the solar can't reduce its output. It's also um, heavily subsidized. So they they just produce even when the prices are negative. So you're going to get an increasing number of hours during a year in Europe where prices are very negative. So what's the best way then to, 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 uh, to get rid of this negatively priced energy? Well, it's to, to build some mining systems using the old generation miners, which are you basically can get for free and then just not run it for most of the year. But when, when, uh, when prices go negative or like close to zero, you just absorb that excess electricity. So these are like, I, I believe the future of mining in Europe is these smaller systems of, of just mining as a, an off-taker to, to off-take this free energy. It's going to be widespread in Europe. There's a lot of these smaller systems is going to be around in Europe. So I'm, um, I'm not bullish on like these huge industrial facilities in Europe, but I'm bullish on these smaller uh, mining, uh, mining uh, uh, installations as kind of a, an energy tool just to offtake this energy and, and balance the electric grid in Europe. So, and I know that after seeing the huge mining community and Bitcoin community in Europe, uh, I know that it's uh, the human capital is just tremendous. So. And the, the 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 willingness to invest in mining from Europe is also huge. So when when uh, in Prague, all these mining as a service companies have boots there, which basically help European investors to invest in mining in Paraguay, uh, Canada, or even Russia. But Europeans, of course, want to if they can, they want to invest in mining in Europe. So you have a huge push. To make mining happen in Europe, so I really believe it will be uh, successful over the long term. I think the only reason, just to note on that um, grid balancing factor, the <clears throat> the only angle that you can have is is again a regulatory shift, because I also believe that hydrogen and battery lobbyists or, or the lobbies is simply too strong in Europe to to easily overcome that, right? But if you again exactly what you said, if If Germany, for instance, instead of selling the power um, to to a neighboring country at a negative price, so paying the 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 off taker for taking the energy, if they can just throw on some S nines that they have at strategic locations in the grid, like a toaster, you know, I'd rather just produce heat and waste the energy and create demand that way than pay somebody else to to off take the energy from me, right? I mean, in in the quarter first quarter of 2022. Yeah, um, 70 or more percent of all the offshore wind in Germany was was capped off by the grid regulator because they had nowhere That's for the crazy. power to go, right? And wow. that energy has to get is is paid for, right? So that energy yeah. is is paid for 6.5 per, uh, cents per kilowatt hour. The 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 generators that don't generate anything because again the grid regulator cut them off from the grid. Um, gets paid anyway. And obviously that increases the price for the consumer, um, which is already high. So so there's a lot of angles to play. And and what you said directly about TerraHash, I, I, I fully agree as well. Shout out to them <clears throat> um, and the team in, in Augsburg in Germany that, that tries to make 
um, small and and sort of middle mid-sized business owners and large I mean all kinds of businesses really understand that they have to be more independent after what we saw with the situation in, in Russia and the Ukraine when it comes to energy right and if you have your solar on your roof and if you have processes within your company or within your industry um, uh, on the ground when you're manufacturing something for instance where you need heat Right? Why not use the excess solar from the roof, produce heat with Bitcoin miners and feed that heat into, into a, a boiler tank, for instance. Right? Um, now, obviously, you always have to see, does it make financial sense? Because obviously there is, is financial uh, cost um, connected to this. But just to have the general idea and have somebody to speak to about this is, is wonderful. I mean, uh, there's tons of, tons of industries and factories in Europe that... Um, that will have to move away from fossil fuels, right? Move towards renewables because due to regulation, fossil fuels will become more expensive. Um, and so th that question of how do I use my excess capacity? What do I do on the weekends, on holidays? Um, what do I do with that ex excess capacity when the grid can't take it? In Germany, you can only feed in 70% of your, of your power. You can't feed in the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of angles to play, a lot of interesting stuff happening through just the simple uh, idea of transforming electricity into heat and producing sets on the way, basically. Um, I have one last question for you, Yaran, before we close out. Um, Bitcoin doesn't use enough energy. What are your thoughts around that? <laughs> It's uh, something I've been thinking about myself. Uh... And firstly, from the Bitcoin network perspective, from the security perspective, I believe Bitcoin uses just enough energy. Uh, I think the system is is very good designed. It's uh, it's as at it is now is very secure. And the beauty of it is that as it grows, as the adoption of Bitcoin grows, the amount of energy consumed by miners will increase proportionally to make the network more secure. So. Is either the, the Bitcoin price need to increase, uh, which is going to happen when more and more people use Bitcoin as a store of value, then the price will increase. That will lead the energy consumption to increase. Uh, transaction fees will also have to increase um, because, of course, the block subsidy is reduced. So if transaction fee doesn't increase, then miners will not consume any energy. But that will not happen because... As the increasing amount of people start to, um, to use Bitcoin uh, and make more and more transactions, transaction fees will have to increase tremendously. And uh, you, uh, you talked with Bob Burnett uh, the other day. He was your last guest. And uh, I have to, to highlight uh, one of his uh, recent uh, tweets or a video he made where he explained that fees will increase tremendously because... There's only a capacity of around 200 million transactions per year. There are 8 billion people in the world. So as an increasing amount of people start to use Bitcoin, fees are going to increase. So I don't believe in all that nonsense that uh, because the block subsidy halves every fourth year that Bitcoin miners will not consume a lot of energy in the future. No, I believe that electricity consumption of the mining network is going to continue increasing just like it has historically and uh, bitcoin mining is going to be an increasingly important electricity consumer globally 
and this is very, very important, very good, because as we have talked about today, all these uh, things Bitcoin mining can improve in the in the energy systems globally. Currently, Bitcoin mining is it's so small; it's like nothing compared to to the total energy consumption of the world. So, if Bitcoin mining stays at its small level, it can't really have a big impact on the energy systems in the world. So, it will have to increase and going to increase which is really good and then the big energy companies are going to, to see the the benefit of integrating bitcoin mining into their their, their energy systems uh, we will see just a lot of innovation uh, so th then bitcoin mining can be really transformative uh, on, on the energy level like it will definitely be transformative on the monetary level but for it to be transformative on the energy level energy consumption will have to increase and it will happen if uh, bitcoin gets adopted and it will happen so i'm not worried about about the energy consumption being too low beautiful thank you yaran this has been a absolute pleasure i think we've given listeners a very good broad overview over what mining looks like globally with a focus on the uae Your article is coming out tomorrow. I can only implore every listener to check Yaran out um, online. Check out his articles on Luxa. Um, they are very insightful. If you're a miner looking to deploy to, to a certain country, definitely make sure to, to have a look at that research and, and get in touch if you, if you have any questions. Um, Yaran, thank you. Do you have any uh, final words? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jesse. It's been a, a great, uh, great talk. And uh, yes, please, uh, please reach out to me if you have uh, any questions about mining in different places in the world. But for Africa, uh, contact Jesse. All right, perfect. I, he has yes. uh, the most experience there. So thanks for having yeah, I'm, me. I'm the, I'm the gate, the gate, the gatekeeper, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. But maybe, hey, maybe I'll do some. Um, some some research um, when it comes to Bitcoin mining in, in different African nations. Who knows what's, what what is in store for us? Yeah, thank you very much again for your time and for your expertise. And yeah, maybe we will um, do more of these in the future if you have other um, you know country focuses coming up. Um, with yeah, that being said, to. everybody have a great day, great evening, good morning. Enjoy your walk, enjoy mowing the lawn or whatever it is that you do when you listen um, to us speak. And yeah, tune in next time and I will make sure that uh, an episode comes out in a timely manner. Right, bye-bye. See you next time.